Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17, it's a, you're not going to be surprised to hear me say this, but it's, it's weird. Uh, it's not accessible. Uh, we're talking about uh, kings and authority, God sovereignly using pagan kings to accomplish his purpose. Uh, really what I want to do, I, I have some notes for you here, uh, front and back. I, uh, I typed out a, three paragraphs. I kind of I pulled some statements that I think may be helpful to you uh, from an excellent study on the book of Revelation that is very influential to everybody who studies it. This guy, Richard Balkum, New Testament scholar. Uh, Basically, again, it's going to be a hard chapter to get our heads around. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you this, kind of by way of introduction, we only have six chapters left, 17 to 22. That's about eight pages in my Bible. That's a little longer than the book of Galatians. So we're, we're in the home stretch. And as we look from chapter 17 to the end of Revelation, what really is going to emerge is kind of what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of it there when he said uh, there's a wide road and a narrow road. Do you, do you remember how he makes this conclusion? He talks about fruit, you know, trees bearing good fruit or bad fruit. And uh, he says there's a broad road and a narrow road. Y'all remember that? Uh, so the broad road, he says, there's a lot of people on it. Uh, the narrow road, not many people on it. Uh, he, he talks about a person who built a house, a home builder. One, one guy built a house on a solid foundation, rock. Another person couldn't be bothered, built a house on sand. Storm hits them both, uh, and the outcomes of those two houses were very different when the storm came. Okay, so as we're looking to the end of Revelation from our vantage point here in chapter 17, uh, storm is coming. Storm is coming uh, to the earth, uh, political storm, religious storm. And ultimately, if you remember last week, uh, chapter 15 and 16, God's wrath is going to storm down on the earth. And it's all going to boil down to people's relationship to God uh, through His Son, Jesus. And He's the solid rock. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the solid rock. We sing that. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Okay? Uh, so there's two groups of people that are going to emerge. Those who are standing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and those who are standing on the sand. Now, another way to think about this, the way that the book of Revelation, the way that John was led by the Spirit uh, to write down this vision that he had, uh, two women are going to emerge. Two cities are going to emerge. So apologies to Charles Dickens, his great novel, Tale of Two Cities. Uh, this is a tale of two cities, part one. Uh, the two cities in this end of the book of Revelation are, first of all, the great city of Babylon. Again, Revelation, one of the things that makes it so hard is that it's constantly pulling themes from the Old Testament. It's really a litmus test on your own awareness of the Old Testament. If you're really well aware of the Old Testament, the, the flow of it, 
the themes in it, the theology of it, the, the more you know Revel, uh, the Old Testament, the more you'll appreciate the book of Revelation. And conversely, the less you know about the Old Testament, the less you will really be on track in your study of Revelation. Uh, many people who present material on the book of Revelation <laughs> end up in this, uh, you know, just wild land of, I don't know what's happening, and it's the future, and what's, it, it's very difficult. Uh, but I'm telling you, and I'm the guy that's the best teacher on the book of Rep- <laughs> You're like, I'll be the judge of that, and so far it doesn't look too good. Uh, seriously, though, this is a fact. Revelation is grounded on the Old Testament. Okay, and, and the same thing here. Uh, we're going to read about Babylon in this vision that John has. Uh, we, Babylon's already been mentioned in prior chapters 14 and 16. Uh, but if you remember Babylon from the Old Testament, Babylon pr- played a big part in the history of God's people, right? Uh, what, what happened? Well, about... 500 years before Jesus came, a little more than that, 600 to 500 years before Jesus came, Babylon became a world power. They weren't a world power very long. Uh, Assyria, Babylon conquered Assyria, and then Babylon was conquered by Persia, and that's kind of in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Persia let Israel go back to the land. Babylon's the one that came in. Do you know what they did in Jerusalem, Babylon? You know what they did? They, they completely destroyed Jerusalem, completely destroyed everything, took all the stuff out of the temple, took it, took it back to Babylon. Well, do you know what Rome did to Jerusalem in A.D. 70? Very same thing. Very same thing. Okay, 600 years later, 700 years later, uh, as the prophets foretold, Rome completely sacked Jerusalem, tore everything down, including the temple. Okay, the temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D., just like Babylon had destroyed it in 586 B.C., so roughly 600 uh, B.C. Uh, so Babylon, in the Old Testament, was famous, infamous would be a better word, for pagan, idolatrous, anti-God power political power. You remember the stories, right, from the book of Daniel? Uh, the handwriting on the wall, that was Babylon, okay? Uh, the, the Nebuchadnezzar went crazy. He's crawling around like a beast. And then he learned a big lesson. You can read about it in Daniel. And that lesson is presented here as well. So when, when God gives this vision to John on that Sunday afternoon on Patmos, in his day and age, there in the first century, with these seven churches in Asia, these seven cities in Asia, guess what? They were under the dominion of Rome. Now, if you will think back, and this would be a good exercise to do, to think back to those messages of those seven churches uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, if you would think back to that, you'll recall that some of those churches were doing very, very well. Some of those churches were fabulously wealthy. Uh, One particular person had built an entire gymnasium, Colosseum. So so 
being under the dominion of Rome wasn't all bad. A lot of people prospered, including some of those uh, cities in uh, Asia at the time. But God is saying, uh, you can be a follower of the world, a lover of the world. You can be seduced by the world to worship the world, or you can be a lover of God. You can follow God. You can invest in the kingdom of God. And it all boils down to your relationship with Jesus Christ. This vision is wild. It's complex. It's weird. It is also unique in Revelation for a couple of reasons. Uh, this vision is designed, and that's why I call this lesson sobriety test. It's a sobriety test. Are you drunk or are you sober? If you're drunk, what are you drunk on? Are you drunk? This is not a good. Are you drunk on the glory of God? Have you been drinking uh, from the fountain of living water? And are you saturated with the joy of the Lord and the glory of Jesus Christ? Or... Have you been drinking of the culture to the point that you've become inebriated and senseless uh, to who God is and, and what he wants to do in the world and in, in your own life? So how sober are we this morning? This chapter is designed to help us think about that. Now, I said this chapter is unique. You can read the notes. I'm, I'm sure it's said in the notes here. Uh, this is unique in the book of Revelation because you've heard me say that the book of Revelation is a specific kind of literature. Remember that? What kind of literature is it? Excellent. That's a weird word. We don't use it all the time. Oh, I'm feeling apocalyptic today. We don't, you know, it's an alien word in our vocabulary, but that's what it is. It's apocalyptic literature. Now, if you were living in the days of Jesus, if you were living in the Maccabean era before Jesus came, uh, you would be pretty familiar with apocalyptic literature. As a matter of fact, here's where you'll appreciate this. Uh, you remember Dr. Zhivago? Dr. Zhivago? You know who wrote that novel? Pasternak, Boris Pasternak. Do you know that that novel was uh, surreptitiously revolutionary? That it was critical of communism? And you may, you, you've, you've heard of Dr. Zhivago and Boris Pasternak. There's another more modern guy named Avram Turtz, Andrei Sinyavsky. He was also a Russian. And he was living under communist power. And he wrote these fantastic, actually did time in prison. He, he wrote another book called A Voice from the Chorus, where he quotes just random statements that prisoners make. But he wrote this other book called Fantastic Stories. And in these stories, he has these characters that are weird and blown way out of proportion. Uh, and you know what he's doing? He's criticizing. He, it, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, and I can't think of it. It's in these paragraphs somewhere. It's, it's critical literature. 
it's it's a counter-revolutionary literature designed to uh, uh, speak out against the totalitarian political power. That's what it is. Uh, another book like that is George Orwell, right? Animal Farm. You may have it, same thing. This is like that. This is a vision like that. This vision. I wish I could see it here. Uh, oh yeah, here it is. It's it's on the back side. Uh, these three thick paragraphs here. Uh, the Book of Revelation is one of the fiercest attacks on Rome and one of the most effective pieces of political resistance literature from the period of the early Roman Empire. Political resistance literature. Uh, do you remember in World War II when these uh, insurgents were... There was an Order of the White Rose, and they, they published this anti-Nazi literature, and they would distribute these pamphlets secretly. And uh, same kind of thing. Blows against the empire. And that's what's happening here. Um, you know, so living here fat and happy in Germantown, Tennessee, it's hard for us necessarily to relate to it, but we have seen instances through uh, radicalized Islam, ISIS, our own Supreme Court that has made decisions that have clearly stepped on the toes of believers in Jesus Christ, we can kind of see a glimpse of, of what was really right up in front of their faces in the first century. Uh, to, to Pergamum, Jesus says, that was a real city, right, in the first century, there was a guy that was killed for his faith. And you may have seen the video of those Christians, because of their commitment to Christ, who were murdered by those uh, Islamic terrorists, okay? That's, that's what this is designed to fortify believers to keep following Jesus, keep following Jesus, no matter what. Now, I don't know that any ISIS person's ever going to pull your head back and pull out a big knife. But I know a lot of y'all have issues that are that would that would that would tend to draw you away from God. Instead of worshiping him, instead of following him faithfully, the devil, think about it, wants to rob, kill, and destroy your joy, your hope, your faith. He does want to do that. Okay? Affliction, everybody experiences it. God wants to use that, uh, that we would sense his presence as we walk through the fire, not around it, not you go first, and if it's okay, I'll, I'll make a, we're following Jesus Christ through it. All right, now, uh, let's just read this text, and you'll see, uh, you know, how, how bizarre it is, and, and it is bizarre. There are three points, three parts to this chapter. There's a short introduction, and the introduction has an invitation or really a summons uh, in verses 1 and 2. And then uh, in verses 3 through 6, John uh, receives a vision. And then, uniquely in the book, the rest of the chapter, 7 through 18, is an angelic interpreter telling John what he saw. 
If we were familiar with apocalyptic literature, we would be very familiar with these angelic interpreters who come along and a, a, a person sees a vision and he asks these real simple questions like the disciples did of Jesus. Uh, where do you live? And he says, well, come and see. Uh, in, in apocalyptic literature, people ask simple questions about the vision, and this angelic interpreter explains the vision. That's what we have here in 17. That's one of the things that makes this chapter unique. Um, here's what you can look for in, in the interpretation part. You can look for the phrase, that you saw. The angel is going to tell John, hey, this thing that you saw, this is what this is. Uh, there are four key things to look for. Uh, the beast the horns of the beast, the heads of the beast, the waters where the, the, the waters, uh, and the woman. Okay, I guess that's five. The beast, the heads, the horns, the waters, the woman. You might want to underline that as, as I read it. Now, let me say one other thing that not many people, I doubt you've ever heard this about the book of Revelation. But just take a look for a moment, if you will, at verses 1 through 3. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me. Now, where have we heard about the seven bowls? We just heard about them, chapter 16. So this is a direct, that one of those angels, by the way, it was bowl number six and seven. That's where you can read about Babylon. One of those angels that poured out the wrath of God on the beast worshipers, on Babylon itself, one of those angels came and said to me, now notice what this angel says in verse 1. Do you see this? Come, I will show you. That phrase only occurs three or four times in this book. Only three or four times. Chapter 4, here... And in chapter 21, I, I think I've got this written down too. Actually, you can uh, see it uh, on your notes here. Where are we in the book? What's going on? The first page. Uh, come up here, I will show you. Look at verse tw chapter 21, verse 9. Come, I will show you. That's specific, unique language, and it only occurs these three times. Here's the point. Chapter 17... This angel is going to show John a vision of a woman. Then again, in chapter 21, using the exact same language, an angel is going to show John a vision of a woman. So Revelation ends with two women, one here and one in chapter 21. Okay, in this language. Uh, uh, then notice verse 3, where the angel carries me away in the spirit where does the where does the angel carry john in the spirit in verse 3 to the wilderness all right in chapter 21 verse 9 the angel is going to carry john away in the spirit same language to a big mountain and he's going to see a different woman that he saw here okay all right uh, so know that that know that this 17, 1 through 3, I'm calling it, it's a major intersection in the book of Revelation. So that as you think about Revelation, you know, messages to the seven churches, uh, throne room vision with the slain lamb, seals, trumpets, bowls, and then how do you think about the end of the book? The way you ought to think about it, the way the book is written is 
there's a great prostitute, she's a harlot, she's a whore, and then there's another woman, a bride, okay? There's a whore and a bride at the end of the book. Which one are you going to be related to? That's the question behind this. Okay, let's read this. Uh, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you, notice, the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he, this one of those angels, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it, the beast, had seven heads and ten horns. Right out of chapter 13, right out of Daniel chapter 7. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, royal and red, which is royalty, but where did that red come from? You'll see in just a moment. And adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So friends, this is not a poor street hooker in the red light district. This is a high-class prostitute that is used to servicing the heaviest of the hitters of the world. She's decked out, okay? This is not some street tramp. Uh, She was holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is literal, but it is also metaphorical through the Old Testament of idolatry. God is real. He's a person. He enters into covenant with his, His people, Israel. And he says, Israel is constantly committing adultery against this this personal God who loves them. All through the prophets, you've gone a-whoring after other gods. So sometimes, yes, there was actual physical sexual immorality happening, but it's also deeper than that. Yes, it's an affair. It's an affair of the heart. God's people, Philip Yancey, Uh, describing the prophets in the Old Testament called God the jilted lover, like Hosea. I love you. I love you. And you are so, you're in heat for everybody else but me. And and it's it's, uh, potent and powerful, this spiritual tendency to be unfaithful to God. And, And the sexual aspect of that is the way that that's often depicted. On her forehead, uh, history says that foreheads in the first century, or foreheads, uh, foreheads in the first century were often owned by prostitutes who wrote stuff on them. How's that for circumlocution? Uh, prostitutes would often have bands on their heads identifying them as such. On her forehead was written a name of mystery. Not like Sherlock Holmes, but it's more like encryption. It's a riddle. It's a, it's a mysterious name that means something. And here's what it said on her forehead. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And not only was a woman sitting on the beast with this golden cup, but look at verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, 
when I saw her, I marveled greatly. I was astounded. I was astonished. It freaked me out, John is saying, this woman. Uh, you know, she's got this super red lipstick on, but, but out of the corner of her mouth is a blood because she's drunk on the blood of the followers of Jesus. Okay, uh, that's the vision that John had. Now, here's the interpretation, verse 7. But the angel, one of those from 16 that poured out the wrath of God in a bowl, the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw, here's that phrase, was, it, it used to be here, and now is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. This is all symbolic, metaphorical language. So we're picturing the symbol, but the symbol relates to something real and actual. And what it relates to are these pagan, powerful, affluent Roman kings that had conquered the world, all of the Asian Mediterranean basin, conquered it all, and they brought prosperity and idolatry to the nations. Okay, uh, I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the, of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise. Does that remind you of anything, that language? Was, is not, and is about? Yes, it's a parody. It's cheap makeup. It's a cheap imitation. It's a white guy doing blackface. Okay, it's a parody of God, the one who is and who was, and who is to come. All the devil can do is corrupt the true glorious reality of God. That's all he can do. Evil, the devil doesn't manufacture evil. He just corrupts the good. That's all he does. Okay, uh, and that, that's what this language is reminding us of. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You see that? There are two groups of people. Some have had their names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And you can label that however you want, but that's what it says in the Bible. And these people's names are not in there. Uh, And they're going to marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, what seven heads? Seven heads of the beast that that gaudy prostitute was sitting on. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. You know this. I think Jimmy just said this recently. Rome is the city of seven hills. So when they're here in seven mountains, they're like, ah, I got you, John. I know what you're talking about. That's Rome up there. That's Rome you're talking about. That's right. Uh, Seven mountains on which the woman is seated. But look at verse 10. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, Bible students go crazy over this. Is this historical? Is he talking about five literal, actual Roman kings, uh, and then uh, five have fallen, one is, another has not yet come? Or is this symbolic? 
Seven, a perfect, complete number of Roman kings. Or is it some combination of both? Lots of language you know, put on that from the first uh, century of Roman emperors and rulers. And let me just say, I'm not being flippant here, chronology and history is very difficult when it comes to putting all this together biblically. So uh, people a lot smarter than me say it's very hard to figure out exactly which Roman kings he's talking about. What isn't hard to figure out is that he's talking about Roman rulers. And you've heard of these guys. Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Claudius, Nero, Titus, Vespasian, Domitian. You've heard of those guys, right? They were leading this Roman Empire. Okay, and this is talking about them in some way. As for the beast that, that was and is, this is verse 11, and is not, it is an eighth but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So, what's that word again? Political resistance literature. John is talking about these Roman rulers. You know what they said, don't you? They said Caesar is Lord. That's what they said. Well, what did the Christians say? No, he's not. Jesus is Lord. So, what's it going to be? Jesus is Lord. Caesar is Lord. You're going to die for somebody. Who are you going to die for? Jesus or Caesar? That's the choice that John was putting in front of the people to fortify them to faithfulness. Okay, uh, verse 12. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Power, authority, kings. These are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Who's the beast? Ultimately, the beast is the devil. We read about him in chapter 12. Kicked out of heaven, down to earth, red dragon trying to devour Christ. He can't get to Christ. So second best, if he can't get to Christ, he wants to get to you. And John is telling the Christians in the first century, Satan hates you because you're following the Lamb. Think about it. The Lamb of God, not the bizarre dragon of the serpent, the devil. It's the Lamb or the dragon. It's up to you to decide. And if you're tending to follow the dragon, you need to wake up and repent and follow the Lamb. Okay? All right. Uh, Let's see. These are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast, ultimately the devil. They will make war on the Lamb. And this, this is in the future at some point. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For why? He is King of Lord, sorry, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with Him are called. And if you're called and respond, you know you're chosen. And if you're chosen, your responsibility is to be faithful, called. Many are called. Fewer chosen. Maybe fewer are faithful. We're supposed to be faithful. Uh, And then the angel, this interpreting angel from chapter 16 said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. I saw in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, there was a phrase that referred to the sitting president. What does that mean? The guy who's in power now. Three times in his chapter, this prostitute is sitting. 
She's in power now. She's got the influence. Uh, the waters where she's sitting, the waters where she has her influence, it's the whole world. The waters, the Tiber River in Rome, the Mediterranean Sea, all of those cultures, Africa, Europe, uh, what we call the Middle East, Spain and all that, all around the Mediterranean, all of those people had been seduced by Rome, this political, military power. And as they were seduced in light of all this glittering prosperity, they also followed the gods of Rome away from the true God of Israel. Okay. Uh, the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. So it's interesting. These, these powers and authorities ending, will end up hating the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked. They, return, they will turn against her and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Did you ever read The Fall of the Roman Empire by uh, Mr. Gibbon? Do you see why in verse 17? God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose. Who is sovereign over all the wicked evil of the world? Who is sovereign? God is. God is sovereign. It's not always going to be this way. One day, it's going to be different. Babylon's going down. First century, hey, seven churches, Christians in the first century, Rome's going down. Hey, I would say to you, any kingdom other than the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ is ultimately not eternal. So make sure that you're in that one. That's the last kingdom standing. That's the one you want to be part of. Uh, God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Herod and Pilate thought they were satisfying the Jews who wanted to kill Jesus. And they were. But they were also accomplishing the sovereign, eternal plan of God to allow His Son to be consumed by the powers of Rome in order to achieve a great salvation so that you and I could see starkly the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon. So that you and I could aspire through Jesus Christ to be part of the bride and not consorting with the whore. Okay, I'm using that language. Hopefully that's a little unpleasant and shocking because that's John was freaked. He marveled, okay? So the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Uh, do you remember when Jesus was in the wilderness? The, the Spirit took John to the wilderness and he sees this uh, image. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness? You remember who came and met Jesus in the wilderness? The serpent. The dragon, the devil came, and he tempts Jesus. One time he, he does this. He takes him up, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all of them. Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, shows him. All. And the devil, what does he say to Jesus? I'll give you all this power, but you got to worship me because that's really what I want. I hate, I hate God. I want to be worshiped. I want to be his God. I'll give you all to him if you just worship me. What does Jesus say? You got to love the Lord your God and worship him alone. This chapter is designed to help us realize 
Our culture wants to seduce us away from loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? We can't serve God and mammon. Jesus says, you can't have two masters. You've got to have one master. And only if God is your master, only if Jesus is your lover, can you be protected and preserved from consorting with literal whores or material philosophical whores that are going to take you away from the way and the truth and the life. John says it in his letter, don't love the world, love God. Nothing can compare to Jesus. This was a marvelous, astounding vision. That woman probably was very seductive, or it was at one point in time, this great prostitute, this symbolic prostitute, she, she made her living by seducing. It might have been sexually appealing to John. But Jesus is the truly beautiful one that when we fall in love with him, he and he alone can meet our every need in such a way that our lives reflect his glory and we become redemptive followers of the Lamb in the world. So, take out the breathalyzer, blow into it. Are you drunk? Are you sober? It's time to drink the living water and walk carefully, clearly after Him. Not by yourself. Just follow Him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, uh, may you, by your Spirit, take this truth and apply it to our hearts, whether it's encouragement that we need, whether it's instruction, clarity about the world in which we live. Lord, maybe we need to be rebuked. Maybe we need to be trained to keep our eyes on Jesus and get to know him better. Whatever our need, only you know it. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this truth and Uh, press it deeply into our minds and hearts that we would experience your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.